Sarah and George Joy Property Podcast. Hi, so today we're talking about how to take advantage of the new permitted development rules. Um, and I'm here with design and planning expert Kingsley Hughes. So hi, everyone. This is George Choi and welcome to the Sarah and George Choi Property Podcast. It's the show that helps you to become financially free so you can quit your job and live your dream life. And today I have the pleasure, the great pleasure of interviewing Kingsley Hughes. He's co-founder of Designscape Consultancy. He's the ex-urban design advisor to the Royal Borough of Greenwich. So that's pretty impressive. And he's got expert knowledge of the planning process because not only does he work with planning departments, but he has worked in them before. So that's fantastic. A lot, a lot to draw upon. And he's also designed buildings, not only in the UK, but in many cities across the world. So welcome Kingsley. It is such a great pleasure to have you here. So thank you, thank you for coming. Um, but I think let's let's just start at the beginning. So before we get started, what are the advantages of doing permitted development versus applying for full planning approval? If you could just tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I think one of the main things of permitted development is a factual thing. So it's an objective fact. So it's never at the whim of planners or councillors, for example, or neighbours, uh, provided you within the parameters and fulfil the requirements of that permitted development um, you're legally allowed to go ahead and nobody can stop you. So obviously that's a big, big advantage. Obviously also time uh, frame is a big factor. Um, most developers incur dreadful delays um, in going through the planning process. Uh, permitted development, provided you're up to date with the facts and put it in either for a lawful development certificates, etc. You, you can go ahead and you're not in for interminable delays. Yeah. And certainly I've heard of cases, and I don't know if you've heard of this too, where someone's applied for planning permission, been refused, and not realised they could just slide it straight in with permitted development. So then they've done it afterwards, and then they've said to the council, why didn't you tell me I didn't need your approval? And it's like, well, you, you didn't yeah, apply, yeah. you didn't do it. Yeah, it's dreadful. Honestly, it is dreadful sometimes. Um, Any of you follows me on LinkedIn when I posted recently about a case that we had where this couple had been in good faith to see the planners. Uh, they've got a nice big house up on the downs above Seven Oaks. Uh, the planners told them they would never allow them to do any extensions whatsoever to that property. Um, then they came to me in some distress and we achieved lots of very, very big extensions to that property uh, under their permitted development rights. Uh, which the planners had not even informed them about. Yeah, I mean that's that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. It's terrible, really. I mean, let's let's face it. It's it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be it should yeah. be allowed. It should well, be permitted. Words, <laughs> words fail you, really, don't they? <laughs> um, brilliant. So let's so let's get to the meat of meat of why we're here today. Now, I'm you know it's 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 been in the news almost every single day. I see I see another you know another I get another alert. On, on new build, build, build and planning, you know, permitted development and what's going on. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure because there have been a number of changes recently, um, I'm sure a lot of people are totally confused about what you can do now that you couldn't do before. But I think most importantly, you know, for the, for the people on my, on, my, on my show is how do I take advantage of it? So it's really understanding, mm. okay, so you can do this kind of extension or you can, you could, you know, increase two stories on top of this what kind of building should I be looking for? What kind of plot should I be looking for? So if you could kind of walk us through the changes and if you could make reference to, okay, so this is what you're allowed to do. So this is the kind of property you want to go out and look for and you can make a lot of money if you do that. 
All right. Yeah. Over to you. Um, <laughs> That's can, a big, can, big challenge. <laughs> can, can I cycle this right back, George? Go, um, go right for it. To, right back to 2015. In the, in, the, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, the when the dinosaurs were around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the, uh, the GD, uh, sorry, GPDO from 2015, uh, which is when PD, as we know it, first came in. So obviously, um, let, let's wind this right back. PD is short for Permitted Development. Uh, GPDO is short for General Permitted Development Order. Uh, so that's the legal framework that provides the PD. Uh, the reason I'm winding it right back to 2015 is that the 2015 document is a very, very long document, very, very lengthy. Um, it's been updated every year since then. Okay, so it's good. Even we have 2015, obviously, on our server uh, as a reference document to always refer back to and everything else is a variation or an add-on to that 2015 document. Now, some of those revisions, uh, say that 2016, 2017 example, um, a lot of the things in there, they simply ex time-extended things which otherwise would have expired as set out in 2015. So say something was due to expire, you, know, you can only do this until 2018, for example, the government thought, hey, hang on, we'll extend this for another three years, or indefinitely even. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's the thing that's, that's really changed a lot. Now, the other important thing is many people are not even aware of their rights under the 2015 document, let alone anything subsequent to that. Um, so it is important to get a hold of 2015 with the updates as well. Um, um, I think it's also important the government is trying to encourage uh, extensions, encourage new builds, encourage economic activity and delivery of dwellings. I mean, all these three things are sort of interlinked, really. Um, and that's one reason the extended, what they call prior approval, uh, permitted development under the GPDA uh, came in, we can extend back not just four metres for detached dwelling, but eight metres, provided the neighbours don't complain. A very, very quick caveat. Of what course. happens if they do complain? <laughs> um, it's not a, a deal breaker. It's then at the planner's discretion. So really, right. you are then, you're then sort of at the whim of the planning system in many ways again. Uh, right. where you can go to subjective judgment and weight of planning balance. Okay. Um, and that's one of the things we did for the, the big property on the downs above Seven Oaks was using the prior approval process right. and the neighbours didn't object. So, so you got really nice big extensions uh, to properties through that. A couple of caveats are that there are places, obviously, where you can't do any PD. So if it's a listed building, forget about it. If you're in a conservation area, forget about it. I mean, we have done things, say in Fulham, for example, where we've extended houses you know, quite substantially uh, in a way that's similar to what you could do in the PD. But in a conservation area. But again, there's no PD, so you will need a planning permission to do that, uh, provided it's considered reasonable uh, by the planners. Uh, a few other uh, things besides are things like AOMB, national parks, SSI areas. One thing that's really good is uh, what's that you SSI? Can, a site of special scientific interests. Okay, yeah. So what about like, um, right? area of outstanding natural beauty? Yeah, AOMB, you can't do it. Right, okay. uh, many, a lot of people don't realise that the laws relating to AOMB are pretty much as strict as they are in national parks. Okay. Uh, but the great thing in this part of the world, uh, one of the things that's not in that catch-all of exclusions is metropolitan London Greenbelt. So in the Greenbelt, PD does apply, including the larger prior approval PDs. This shows some of the work we've done recently um, for Redbridge 
by the council in London and showing some of the intensification. Uh, so these are some of the buzzwords that people are using these days are intensification or densification. And the idea that you must make the best use of every square inch or every square millimetre of land uh, to the utmost, especially using brownfield land. So basically slide two shows an existing site, an notional site, but a realistic site. Um, and slide three shows the proposal that you could get on that site. Uh, now, that sort of answers your question, really. That's one of the kinds of sites that you should be looking for. Um, so um, not to be um, too dismissive, but say scrappy little bits of land. Yeah? Right. It might be a small uh, scrap metal merchants. It might be a vehicle repair workshop. It might be a series of those sort of garages that date from the 1960s and early 70s. Uh, the backs of properties that nobody particularly needs anymore. Um, so okay. sites like that, it might even be a piece of tarmac with broken glass and other right. things so I've on seen, it. I've seen, for example, um, car, car parks for sale. And, um, you know, as you were mentioning garages, I've seen sort of like, I say a block of 10 garages, which mm -hmm. I can only assume is near a block of flats or something. So yes. is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? It is, yes, yeah. And obviously there's a certain irony there that we've done lots of projects um at zero parking where one of the um one of the reasons we can put forward to justify that is that there's parking available in the area and right. the planners agree very often that there's parking in the area okay. and then lo and behold those car parks often get redeveloped. <laughs> um, so there is, there is an irony there that, that uh, right. there's a certain tension but then yeah. we're trying to discourage car use anyway and trying to encourage especially in tanks okay. Uh, urban centres trying to encourage public transport okay. uh, and walking and cycling more than okay. car use and car ownership. Uh, but those are the kind of sites. And very often you find that, um, say like a vehicle repair sort of uh, respray, paint workshop, that kind of right. place, very right. often you find that the owners of those places uh, may not always realise how much they're worth in terms right. of redevelopment. Gotcha. Uh, and their businesses, which probably were very, very successful and lucrative, say 10 or yeah. 15 or 20 years ago, uh, right. the margins very often squeezed down to almost zero. So yeah. they'd be very, very happy to have a conversation. Okay. And how, how do you know that it's within this metropolitan area? How do you identify that? Um, the key things to look out for are things like tube stations, um, bus stations, Bus right. stops, even uh, things like anything that's near public transport, obviously DLR, the tram in Bromley and Croydon, um, especially things that are within easy walking distance of those places. Okay. Uh, the other place I quite like is fringe town centres. So if you imagine London being a matrix, so London's not just one big CBD and then mm -hmm. suburbs around it, yep. um, you can imagine London being made up of, say, 40 towns. And each of those towns have got its own town centre. Yeah. Um, so I'm not talking about the city or Westminster or Mayfair. <laughs> yeah. um, as long as you're near one of those sort of town centres yeah. and near public transports, walking distance to things like shops and restaurants, cafes, right. places of work, those yeah. are the kind of places to be looking at. Okay, so what if you're, you know, I, li I live in Kent, um, you know, and other people will live in similar kind of towns with me where, where you're in a, you know, um, you're in a town, it's not a city, mm -hmm. and there's countryside around it. How, how, how do you know how far you can go? Um, the planners, yeah, yeah, the planners will let you know. It's just on their maps and everything. If you look at the okay. lo local plan mapping, um, and the same sort of hierarchy applies you know, to a Kent town or a Surrey town, for example, yeah. just as much as London, that mm -hmm. the focus for development should be in the town centre. Yeah. It's like a hierarchy of, say, five different tiers of, of preference. 
um, almost like a tick, a tick box sort of trip mechanism. Look yeah. in the town centre. If you can't develop in the town centre, look in the suburbs of that town. Okay. If you can't develop there, then look at the regional service centres, they call them. So, you, yeah. so you've got like a, a regionally sized village with mm-hmm. shops, post yeah. office, etc., and preferably okay. a railway station as well. Okay. Um, so it's those sort of places. And then you get to the ultimate, let's say a very, very isolated rural site is obviously the least uh, attractive prospect to the planners. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you for that. Okay. So what, where do we go from there? Um, I think the main thing really is if we focus back on PD, um, when people think of PD, they think of extending, doing a real extension to their house, should mm. we say. Yeah. Um, the traditional uh, small ones going back a few years, we'll say three metres yep. uh, for a terrace or a semi or four metres for a detached house. Uh, like I say, that has been doubled under the prior approval PD process. Uh, but it's also important to recognise that PD also focuses on change of use. So you can change from one building type to another building type. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most famous ones, of course, or in some ways infamous, because some people do not like them, is changing a big office block into flats, yep. or even co-living serviced accommodation, micro-flats. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done some of those in the past uh, with success. And again, that's under PD. So the planners can't actually stop you doing it. Right. Right. Uh, there are a few caveats to look out for. You do, there are a few tests. You do need to think about um, flooding, uh, you need to think about surcharging the sewage system, if you like, not to get too gross in this podcast. Because <laughs> uh, obviously in off- office block, people are having maybe a cup of tea and a sandwich yeah. at lunchtime. Yeah. Because if they're real flats, there's a danger that it's generating oh, more sewage, right. if you like. Um, then the th- so that's the second test. The third right. test is, uh, is noise as well. Right. And that's not noise in the sense of the, the block becoming a noisy um, noisy neighbour yeah. it's more about existing neighbours um coming under pressure to close so for example in a nice vibrant town centre you've got things like pubs nightclubs yeah what they don't want is existing businesses say an existing nightclub coming under pressure to curtail its noise or even close down because you've suddenly introduced lots of flats next right. to it under an Makes office sense. conversion uh, that is Miller House in Maidstone, which is the biggest office block in Maidstone, uh, which we were involved in converting into 63 flats, uh, oh. which is a big success. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, in some ways, that tallies with home working, ironically. Yeah. So a lot of these big <laughs> office blocks maybe would have been you know, thought superfluous in any case. Mm, definitely. Just, just popping back to the residential part. So let's say you're going to put a nice large extension, take, take to the maximum of permitted development. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you maximise the value of your house? So when you decide to plan in your extension and the room layout, how do you get the most money so that if you then resold it, you would, you would make the most? What would be your advice? Well, in terms of selling with planning or in terms of actually building it out? You so if you, build, if you build it out, because, you know, you could use it for all sorts of different things. Because, um, yeah. you know, in, in general, adding bedrooms is what raises the value of the house so if you're on yeah. the ground floor so this is a single story extension mm-hmm. how do you make the most money from your extension what kind of layout yeah. do you need to increase the price the overall gpv okay. well, we've done quite a few of these we do love in addition to the big projects of blocks of flats and housing estates etc we do enjoy working with private clients uh, doing these large extension and remodeling projects because they're great fun mm-hmm. uh, what i would say um, i mean don't forget you can extend upstairs as well not as far, but you can still extend upstairs. Um, if the house has already got an extension, don't worry about that. You can extend even further. So you have to measure back from the original house. So, for example, if a house has been extended three metres already, 
you can then extend another five meters. We've been right. eight meters overall because you're measuring that eight yep. meters from the original house. Yep. Um, what I would say, the important things are um, to think about design. And obviously, I'm an architect yep. primarily. I love architecture. Um, so we always think in terms of flow and space and light. So that's why I attach the word remodeling. So it's not just an extension project. It's an extension and remodeling project. Because yes. uh, what you don't want to do is tag a huge extension at the back of your house, make the rest of the house seem really, really dark and horrible and unattractive. Yeah. Uh, you want to smash through the rooms, make the thing flow, make the whole thing feel generous. Uh, don't make it feel like a smaller house that was extended. Make it feel you know, the coherence, if you like, of that house has to flow together. Uh, the other important thing is what I was saying about making the old part dark is introducing light uh, through roof lights or walk on roof lights or VLXs or just other clever tricks uh, to get light as close as possible to where the old house used to finish. Um, and that, that you know, you can work wonders. We, we've totally transformed houses you know, over recent years. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. So what's what's next then? I'm excited. <laughs> um, right. Okay. I think, um, yeah, it's very exciting times right now. Um, this is probably one of the most exciting years ever for planning. Uh, there's three things in particular. And planning is very important. I see you're very happy there, George. Yeah, very celebrating, happy. <laughs> celebrating planning. Because uh, the thing about planning is it can add value whatever the property market is doing. So even if things are flatlining in terms of value per square foot, if you add a couple of thousand extra square foot, you've made money. Mm. Uh, and even in a quiet market, you can sell things with planning. Um, you know, make, might not make quite as much per square foot as if it was in boom time, mm. but you're adding value. So yeah. if anything, it becomes as important or even more important uh, mm. during a flatlining uh, market. Yeah. Um, so um, the thing that came in uh, most recently, which started on August the 1st, which is incredible, just a few days ago, uh, was the very latest division of PD, so the, the GPDO. And um, one of the most exciting things about that is the principle of upward extension. Um, so the main principle of that is you can extend an existing block of flats up by another two storeys, another one or two storeys, if it's uh, already three storeys or above. Okay. Uh, and that's up to 30 metres. So you can okay. extend uh, whatever it is, you know, say seven stories up to nine stories, obviously six to eight, yep. et cetera. Uh, it's something that we've already been doing uh, with planning already. So it's something that the planners were not really adverse to. West Tree uh, in Maidstone, mm -hmm. uh, which is just a very simple uh, building, uh, which we've added an extra story to of apartments. Um, so it's that kind of project. Um, okay. But uh, being able to do that under PD is very mm -hmm. exciting. What I what would are, say, sorry, I was going to say, what are the caveats to that? When can't you apply that rule? That's what I was going to mention. Okay, actually. perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are quite a few caveats to that. So please don't run hell for leather uh, and, and start adding stories to buildings uh, without thoroughly reading um, the latest GPDO, for heaven's mm -hmm. sakes, uh, 2020 GPDO. These things are all freely available, of course, from the governments. All you need to do is just Google them, whatever. Okay. Or, I'll, 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 put a, I'll put a link in the comments. People can just um, yeah. click on it. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very easy to find these documents. Um, so, um, yeah, lots and lots of caveats. So do go through that and either seek professional advice uh, from an architect or planner or even a, a solicitor or QC, um, to make sure you're doing the right thing and you are operating within the law. 
because obviously what you don't want to do is miss one of these caveats um, and then and then come foul of a planning system because there is a danger uh, that planners could take enforcement action against you. So make sure you are hitting all the uh, tick boxing, all the requirements yeah. and working within the parameters as stated in the law. Yeah, makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, it's still very, very exciting. And obviously mm. the usual things about conservation areas, et cetera, that doesn't apply in conservation areas. Right. Uh, but there are about eight, in terms of Atwood PD, there are about eight other catch-alls that you do need to tick box and make okay. sure you're respecting. Okay, so um, I think I'm, I think, think it's correct in saying that if you did a, um, would it be right in saying if you did an office to flat conversion, you would not be allowed to extend, is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, you'd be, that's the other thing that you'd be very careful of. You can't do necessarily a PD on a PD so, so do be careful. You can't always have your cake and eat it. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say, though, that's very, very useful for PD that we sometimes do, um, you can say to the planners very often, we're allowed to do this under PD, uh, but we don't want to do that. We want to do this instead. And we think this is actually better in many ways, uh, whether it's qualitatively better or more appropriate for that location. Uh, very often the planner will agree. Uh, sometimes the planner will force you to get that lawful development certificate or PD, you know, prior approval at right. PD in place first yeah. to prove that you can do it. So you've got yeah. that as a stepping stone, if you like. Right. Uh, like I say, PD can be very useful for doing other things right. uh, in, instead, if you can convince the planners that the other alternative is better than the PD would have been. Okay, sounds good. Mm, it's very very good i mean the other exciting thing of course which has just come in as well I mean, we've had two things in the space of a month of each other um so september the first is the new use class order mm. okay so i'm not sure how familiar people yep. are with use class orders yeah no please um, give us an overview of the, right. the changes uh that shows uh, the first tranche if you like of use class so you've got the a uh, uses which is mostly things like uh, shops restaurants etc then you've got b which is uh, mostly things like um uh, things like office space and things like that uh, and then you've got c which is mostly residential and things around residential uh, then it moves on to d and then sue generis so that's how things used to be up right. until this month until the first of september yeah um now one thing the previous pds mentioned which i've already covered earlier on in this podcast is that the um some of the pd allowed uh, permitted development changes of use between those things um but they were usually within the use class so different subclasses within use a for example you could do without requiring planning permission mm. now what the government has done was the latest thing which is hot off the press has not even come in yet comes in next week first of september which is very very exciting uh, which is what they're calling the new use class e okay and for use class e you don't even require uh, planning um, to to change any kind of pre prior approval pd or any kind of pd whatsoever it mm -hmm. just is the law that things right. are within class e okay. uh, the main thing in that is switching between these overarching use classes. So what used to be an A can now become B. Uh, so that's, for example, when you say it's an empty shop, nobody wants yep. that shop. Nobody even wants it as a you know, takeaway, fast food outlet. Nobody's interested. Um, then the government's thinking is, okay, let it become something else. Let it become a business. Let it become an office or graphic designs uh, company. Um, so it's not even within use class A, it can become use class B 
without uh, requiring planning permission or even normal PD. So that's a very exciting development. Um, so obviously the government does monitor these things from year to year mm -hmm. uh, and sees how things change. So things yeah. might get tightened up in future or might get loosened up in future. So it's important to, to remember that these things don't always last forever. Yeah. Uh, but this new use class C is a very, very exciting development in my mind. Okay, so tell us a bit more about that. So does that mean then you can just swap any, any use class to any use class? Uh, not any to any. Um, and even within permitted development, you can change uh, some shops, etc., into flats, into residential, uh, provided they're not too large. Uh, I think it's a 100 metre square uh, cap on doing that. So it's usually smaller shops. But you can't just change a gigantic X Woolworths or X Debenhams into <laughs> loads and loads of flats. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, like I say, the class E is mostly between what used to be classes A, you know, various tranches of class A, and uh, section B, use class okay. B, which is office space and business space, okay. which is very exciting. So the benefits of that, you don't get an empty unit, which is very unsightly very often. Um, you know, there's very, very uh, big concerns about the high street mm. right now. Yeah. So obviously there are structural problems with retail, with high street mm. retail. Uh, given online yeah. shopping, etc., even pre-COVID. Um, so what we don't want is um, towns looking like a ghost town, to, yeah. to paraphrase the, the, yeah. the famous song, if you like. That yeah. um, uh, we've got to keep these units uh, mm. busy. Uh, and to my mind, I mean, that's quite a healthy thing in any case. I think perhaps we've been too obsessed with retail in the UK historically. If you go to other cities in Europe and other parts of the world, very often you do get a more balanced use within town centres. You yeah. do get little workshops and flats and, and like graphic designers and officers. Yeah. It's not just an entire, you know, it doesn't have to be 100% retail yeah. downstairs. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's not, not necessary. Yeah. So those, those people that do that where their main business is commercial conversions, commercial to mm. residential conversions, every, everyone knows you, you offices is, is the one, you know, that you can go for historically. Mm. What else should people be looking for that's easy now to convert with under the new rules? Um, well, the main thing is look at brownfield sites. Um, like I say, if there's a compelling argument you can bring to bear, then many planners are very supportive of doing these kinds of changes. Um, you do need to, obviously, you don't want to introduce lots and lots of flats into you know, uh, industrial estates. There's a reason zoning. Uh, well, there's a bigger debate. We touched on a much bigger debate there, George, about zoning. Uh, yeah. That zoning, separation of uses, uh, probably made sense when there were big Victorian mills, etc., belching out lots of fumes and, and, and yeah. smoke. Um, you want to separate those industrial uses from residential. Yeah. Uh, but most sort of leading planners these days, it's all about mixed use and right. keeping things in close proximity to each other. Yeah. Um, so uh, provided there are no reasons to the contrary, such as noise or pollution, uh, then even you know most planning departments are quite open within these urban settings I mentioned, mm -hmm. near public transport, and yeah. in and near town centres, the fringe yeah. town centres, are very supportive uh, for putting these things to, you know, to reuse. Right. Okay, good. All right. So what's next? Excite me. Uh, <laughs> well, well the, the other thing is build, 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 of course. Yes, yeah? yes. Okay, so we've all heard of build, build, build. Now, that's not canon yet. That's still at white paper stage. So that's right. out so to consultation. So that will yeah. be at least another six months. Right. Um, these things often get tweaked a little bit as uh, so they could get tweaked in the spring. Um, but very often from government white papers, the intent usually survives. Right. So say 80 or 90% of what the government intended survives 
such sort of scrutiny and consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about build, 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 it's being billed as the biggest change to the planning mm-hmm. system since 1947. Wow. Because uh, what we talk about, when we all talk about planning, really we're referring to planning law, of course. Uh, and planning as we know it only came in in 1947. Uh, and that's one reason that prices have sort of rocketed um, mm. so astronomically since yeah. 1947. I'm not sure it's happening now with this idea that the property prices have increased every 10 years or even every seven years since 1947 mm. is partly a product of a planning system, right. uh, restraining development. But again, that's right. another debate, if you like. <laughs> um, so um, what um, the government is looking at under Build, Build, Build is having a much simpler planning system. The idea... Uh, under that is that planning, well, land in the UK, particularly in England, because the planning systems are different in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, land in England will be split three ways, okay? Okay. So it'll either be land for um, growth or regeneration or protection. Mm -hmm. Obviously, regeneration is pretty much what I was talking about uh, in terms of good use of brownfield land. Yeah. So things, you know, old workshops near bus stations, et cetera. Okay. Um, so town centres, city centres, fringe mm. town centres. Yeah. Um, so making the best of regeneration in the sense that we've all become familiar with over the last 20 years, you know, good use yeah. of brownfield land, if right. you like. Right. Um, growth refers more to greenfield uh, allocations. Um, so each local authority obviously has to do, under their local plan, is tasked with with doing X number of houses over a plan period. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more about growth into new areas. And then protection, I think the, the thing that um, could keep a lot of people happy, to my mind, uh, when the law comes out, I think protection will remain as strict as it has ever been. And right. perhaps it should. So we're talking about things like uh, AOMB, national parks, etc., right. SSIs. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, that's a bit of a quid pro quo, if you like, that the protected areas should be as protected as ever. Right. Uh, and the trade-off is that we're allowed to be slightly freer, if you like, in the other okay. areas. Okay. Uh, now, there's been lots of complaints or resistance to this from some parts of the professional community um, in that they see the build, build, build and this three-part split as perhaps undermining local democracy to some extent. Right. Um, because there is a tension, obviously there's a real strong tension between central government and local government, yeah. and that the government wants to deliver millions of houses, and it is literally millions right. of houses and flats need to be built in the UK. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, neighbours, NIMBYs, which ought to be a little bit rude, <laughs> but yeah. the NIMBYs and the planners and the councillors don't mm. actually want them to be built in their borough. Mm. Um, so one of the things that's coming through from that, um, which is literally hot off the press, um, is that government often uh, puts forward objective housing need from a borough, right. uh, from the Office of National Statistics. Yeah. So they might say, say a typical borough, the government might say, we want you to build 20,000 homes over the next 20 years, over the planned period. Yeah. Very often the local authority will go back and say, that's all very well, but we can't take that many because we're such a pretty borough. <laughs> uh, we only want to build 10,000 homes. And there's usually an accommodation reached uh, between the two. So they might say, okay, then build 17,000 then. And and eventually there's there's an agreed uh, number. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what I've heard um, just this morning is that um, the government may insist on the objectively assessed need. So the government may may say to a a council, to a borough, 
um, we want you to build 20,000 homes and you will build 20,000 homes. So that's okay. quite an interesting, mm. uh, interesting development. Obviously, politically, um, some of these things are what should we call a little bit of a hot potato, uh, <laughs> to, to say the least. So there could be some yeah. resistance, mm. um, even politically at a party level. Obviously, it's very, very right. tense. Yeah. Uh, but we don't really want to go there. Yeah. Uh, but this idea of reducing or watering down local democracy and planning committees and the ability of planners and councillors to resist development yeah. is obviously a big tension in the system. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's see what happens in the spring when Definitely. the consultation finishes. Sounds good. But, Sounds good. Yeah, but certainly build, build, build is going to be a big <laughs> thing. And I think yeah. whatever happens, I think it probably will be the biggest change uh, mm. to the planning system since 1947, since it was founded. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> um, so thank thank you for that so far. Um, now, I've, I've just got some questions. So I've, I've had some questions um, both sent to me and some that I see raised uh, as well, quite commonly. Yeah. So just thought I'd throw them throw them at you if that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit about where you can find um, plots of lands. You were talking about finding existing buildings like mm-hmm. garages and so on within the metropolitan um, area. Where else? Let's say if you wanted to, you know, to build build something new, so a self build or, um, or a development of a number of houses. Where else should you look for those plots? Uh, if we're looking at self-builders, if we focus on houses in the first instance, uh, building a new house is very, very difficult in, in England, almost impossible. And that, that's a real shame. Um, our level of self-building is pretty much the worst in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not because the willingness is, is not there from, from people who want to do it. It's because the system is completely stacked against them. So they, they really are woeful, our figures, compared to, say, somewhere like the States or Australia or even other countries in Europe. Um, yeah. It really is very, very low. Um, there's a few things. Well, the easiest way to get around it, really, uh, which we've done a few of, is by an existing dwelling. So you can have, so you're not creating a new house. You're doing what's called a replacement dwelling. Mm. So uh, we've done these. We've done ones where you get, say, a two-bedroom little bungalow, and build a seven-bedroom house. We've done that. We've done that mm. in, in Bromley, right. uh, in, or- in Orpington, Chelsfield Park. Um, in fact, a number of times, we've, done <laughs> stuff in the, we've even done repeat stuff in the same street, right. um, in, in those kind of places. Yeah. Uh, but that's the easiest way. Right. So that's a very easy way to get through planning. So that would be, be a full planning application, obviously, wouldn't it? That would be a full planning application, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, because... Um, yeah, because it's a new build or replacement dwelling, should we say. Right, right. Um, well, that whole opens a whole other host of <laughs> issues about, about VAT, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, if you extend a house, you have to pay VAT. If it's a new house, you don't pay VAT. Right. Uh, so there's lo- lots of issues related to that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that, of course, rather than buying a plot of land for, say, £50,000, like you would do in Florida, You've yeah. already paid about £350,000 for this flipping bungalow that you've then got to demolish and yeah. knock value off your, your yes. plot. Yes. Uh, so that's a real nuisance. Um, mm. And that is, it, it's not acceptable, really. So no. one reason the government's come up with, um, or one measure, should we say, is helping self-builders. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, each local authority is supposed, I say supposed guardedly, uh, to keep a list. Uh, they're obliged, should we say, to keep a mm. list of people who have registered in their borough as being interested in self-build plots. Um, And uh, I think that's an ideal thing. Now, the the trouble is, there's a huge difference between how seriously different councils have taken that list um, and their willingness to actually fulfil 
people finding yes. your plots on that I, list. I've I've experienced that. I'm I've been on a list for three years and heard absolutely nothing from them. No, it's not acceptable, really. The government should sort of clamp down. And there are some locals who are very, very good in keeping their list and, and helping people find suitable plots. Um, yeah. Obviously, serviced plots are ideal. We're doing one, for example, at the moment, one of our schemes is for 25 houses, um, 24 of which our developer is building. Right. And the, the 25th is just a self-built plot for somebody right. on that council's list. Right. Um, so they literally just give them the land Obviously, it's a plot of land on a housing estate, yeah. um, but it's going to be laid on. You know, you've got electricity, sewage, gas, all laid on to yeah. that plot. So it is a serviced plot, and obviously highways uh, right. leading up to the property, etc. Okay. Um, so that, that, I think that's a good way forward. Uh, but I think it's something that the, the government should push on mm. because the trouble is, of course, that also raises the problem that the British system is very much dominated by a few big volume house builders yeah. uh, and they can turn the tap on and off um, mm. as they wish to avoid ever creating a glut in the yeah. local market. Mm. Um, so they do tend to drip feed. Uh, I won't say play the system, but I just say play the system. <laughs> um, so the last thing they want to do is create a local glut and suppress their own values, of course. Um, so if we had more self-builders in the UK as a proportion, and yeah. even more sort of small uh, builders, say building six mm. houses or five houses, right. uh, it would help um, sort of curtail this uh, ability of the big volume house builders to control the market so much. Right. Um, so going, going back to you, we're talking about bungalows. So let's say um, there are people out there interested in buying a two-bedroom bungalow and turning it into a five-bedroom house. What kind of bungalow do you want to, do? You, should you look for? Is there a specific size? Um, you know, is there a specific square footage that you need to look for? Um, is it is it a certain street? So if if the bungalows look like this in the street, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to do it. What would you be your advice? So if I just went onto the internet now, went onto Right Move, searched for bungalows, um, which ones would be a go and which ones would be a no? Right. Okay. Uh, there's quite a few things to raise there. I think one of the easiest ways is to see people like you and me, George, to be honest with you. There's, 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 Seek advice. There's a, there's a balance of so many things in the mix there that you have to think about. Um, obviously, make sure it's not in a conservation area. That's the first thing that's a given, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, make sure it's not a listed building, you know, a listed yeah. bungalow, um, yeah. or a listed building next door. Yeah. Next thing you'd be having an impact on a listed building. Um gotcha. It may even be good in some ways to make sure it's not just purely in a street of two-bedroom bungalows, because then the planners could say you're going as the character, the prevailing character of the area. So say yeah. you're buying a bungalow that's got a house both sides, right. or even a house just to one side, yeah. that then gives you a very, very strong case for building a house mm. on your site as well. Okay. Um, um, architectural character is a big thing. So not buying necessarily in a street where all the houses are identical, so there's a prevailing architectural character. Right. If there's a mix of, of things going on architecturally, yeah. um, then you can say, that's fair enough. Our house is different as well, yeah. which is in, you know, uh, in accordance with the, the very character of that street. Mm. Uh, then the other things to look out for, which you must look out for, in terms of size, going back to your question about size, I think just making sure it's plenty big enough uh, for the new house. Uh, you do typically want to make sure you can get a nice big house and at least a 10-metre rear garden Right. Um, and parking at the front. If you're in a more of a suburban location, uh, you do need at least two parking spaces for a decent house, uh, right. and perhaps yeah, perhaps more than that, depending right. on sort of user user requirements. Okay. Uh, and then what I was saying about height, I've touched on already about bungalows and houses next door, uh, but do think about bulk. So in terms of massing the form of the building, 
uh, not just its height, but also its planned footprint, how big it is, uh, whether it be dominance to the neighbours. And these are all legitimate complaints that neighbours can raise. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, they're not just being nimbies or complaints for the sake of it. They are legitimate things that yeah. people do need to think about. So height, bulk, overshadowing, daylight and sunlight, um, and also overlooking. So make sure you're not overlooking or exacerbating an overlooking situation. For example, if there was a bungalow next door to somebody, that's yeah. all ground ground floor. Yeah. So their ground floor windows won't be looking over fences or hedgerows, for example. Right. If you suddenly introduced a big house that's got an upstairs or even a, a mm. third floor, yeah. um, then obviously the scope for overlooking is much exacerbated. Yeah. Uh, but that said, that's, that's one reason it's good to seek professional advice from people like you and myself. Because right. um, you can still, notwithstanding all those things, mm-hmm. you can still achieve incredible things. I mean, we've done huge houses right. with big balconies and terraces off the master bedrooms and yeah. things, um, you know, through redeveloping, through replacement yeah. dwelling. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, provided you handle it properly right. and think about all these things and you mm-hmm. still address those concerns, yeah. even within that envelope, if you like, you can still achieve incredible things. Brilliant, brilliant. What about if it's a, a street where, they're all bungalows down one side and opposite are all, um, you know, double story houses. Um, would that be considered or would you say, that, no, they need to be next to each other? Um, it depends where you are, really. Um, <laughs> it, it all depends on prevailing character and right. um, how, how uh, precious, if you like, that the, the, the planners are. Right. Now, I do know planners, you know, local authority planners who actually hate bungalows. So they're a waste of land. We should be redeveloping, intensifying them. You're not just intensifying new land, but intensifying existing land. Right. Um, so, um, you know, there are people who are more positively minded, even within the planning system, than local authorities. Okay. Uh, but um, I think, I mean, obviously I've been doing this over 30 years, so <laughs> I, I, if I went to any sites, i get an intuitive understanding of what I think yeah. uh, might be appropriate uh, right. for, for a particular site. Uh, and what might be considered inappropriate. Right. Okay. Um, slightly different question, still kind of going on the self-built theme. So let's say you find a big plot of garages or something like that, in, um, and you work out you could build, let's say, three houses, and you want to keep one for yourself. So you, you get, you know, um, what kind of services would you need to have to provide to the other people before you kind of sold the plot to them? How far would you have to go? Um, I guess it depends how much. It's all about risk and reward, isn't it? I mean, how much do you want to be able to get for those plots? The more you give, mm. uh, the more you're able to charge for those plots. Right. It depends how much that purchase is prepared to take on. If you're looking at a typical couple, for example, mm. perhaps they would like those services to be laid on at the very least. Right. Um, whereas if it's a small builder, perhaps, perhaps they're happy to. Or there might be economies of scale, for example. Say you're laying a new sewer, mm. it may be just as easy to lay it for all three with a branch right. coming off for each house. Gotcha. Um, may not be much more um, troublesome than laying it just for the, for the one house. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. But obviously, obviously, a service plot will sell for more, sell for more. Than, than an unserviced plot would do. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's um, switch switch to something else now. So what about um, dividing houses into flats? So that's mm-hmm. something that's quite common with property developers. Talk to me about that. Yes. What you, what yeah, you should yeah. look for. Yeah, we've done that. Um, um, well, we've got current projects where we are doing that. One thing I would say is we prefer big houses. So make sure it is a big house. Uh, how um, big? <laughs> um, 
goodness, there's a question. <laughs> in terms of square footage, um, maybe two and a half thousand, two and a half okay. or three. So okay. we're thinking of big Victorian properties. For it's example, kind of we've got five bedroom house, something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, perhaps a tired one, you know, we're, we're doing right. one, for example, in Croydon at the moment, uh, Fringe Town Centre again. Uh, nice big Victorian um, house. Um, should be worth a lot of money, but with the best of all in the world, you can't rent it for eight grand a month, say in Croydon. It's no. just there's no market for it. Uh, and you can't even split it into two or three flats that rent for, say, two and a half or three grand each. Right. You're much better off doing modern flats, which are smaller. Mm. Um, now, the caveat to that is most boroughs and planners, quite rightly, don't want all these houses to be carved up into flats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a social thing. They want right. London to be a balanced city with happy yeah. families living there, etc. They don't want London just to be a sea of, say, eight million studio flats yeah and all the families have to live out in the home counties or out in the yeah. shires even further distance yeah you right. need to have a balanced community so it is important and that's a legitimate concern of planners right. that we must keep houses uh in in our city centers and town centers right. um so the way to overcome that that we do is um we this is one of the reasons i like a big house to subdivide <laughs> is that what you do the councillors might say no we want a family dwelling to be retained on that site. So what you do, again, going back to things like PD as well, either through planning or PD, mm-hmm. don't just take the existing house, push the envelope, extend that house right. before you think about selling it. So you can literally either do it before you split it or as part of the split, provided it's a, it's a good offer yeah. um, and the plans are reasonable. They'll yeah. say, yeah, that, that's fair enough. You know, we're extending it here. Uh, with the recording one, for example, we're extending it downstairs and we're extending it slightly less on the middle floor, the first right. floor. And okay. then what we do is to count as a family dwelling, um, the ground floor we will convert into one lovely big three-bedroom apartment. And, of course, that's a garden apartment, so that's got lots of attraction because mm-hmm. you've got patio doors yes. or bifold doors at the back. Right. It would be a lovely, lovely unit, either for a family right. or for a couple or even for downsizers because yep. on the ground floor. Yeah. Um, and what the planners will then say, okay, that's fair enough. That's a nice big three-bedroom flat. We'll count that as being in lieu yep. of a house that's been lost. Okay, right. so there is still a family unit on that site. Okay. And then, of course, the rest of the building, you can carve up uh, whichever way you want to, into two-bedroom flats and one-bedroom flats, maybe even a couple of studios in there as well. Okay. Uh, so that's the trick, maybe. Make sure you keep a nice big flat in there, mm-hmm. which counts in lieu of the loss of a family house. Right. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, now, obviously, you've you've been around the block when it comes to oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> designing you. and so on, <laughs> but you still look twenty five. <laughs> <Do I work? laughs> um, so you've obviously seen a lot of mistakes that people have made. If you had to say the top three things that I see over and over again, what would you say they are? Good grief! Uh, I'll say the main thing. <laughs> Uh, the biggest pitfall is paying too much for land. For yeah. heaven's sakes, do not pay too much for sites. That is, you know, you could be end up holding that site for years and it could be a real millstone around your neck. Yeah. I've had clients who've gone to auction. Uh, there's been a natural limit where most people drop out. There's just two people carry on bidding, mm-hmm. as in my client yeah. and somebody else. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, they, they drop out. The other, the other party drops out. And your client's left holding the baby, if you like. Right. Um, so do not bid too much for land. 
Right. Also, I'm not sure I should say this, but oh, beware. Go on. Go on. <laughs> uh, also, for, for medium-sized and even larger-sized developers, uh, do beware of local authority estate asset sales. So say a council is selling some land or a council is selling some building. What will happen is their estate department will big up that land and say, yeah, it could be suitable for this, this, and this, and this, and this. But their own planning department stays quiet Somebody buys the land on the presumption they could get the earth on that land. Go back to the planners. The planners don't want to know. Oh. So, so do be careful about asset sales and local authorities and wow. similar bodies. Wow. Um, so like I said, that's, that's the main rule to me is not, be, not pay too much for land or for buildings. Right. Uh, there's a great saying, the police don't honour it anymore, but Urban Splash used to say, obviously they're fantastic developers. They do, if people are not familiar with Urban Splash, do research urban splash online um started in manchester um just to recap a little bit we all know that carpeting carpet yeah is very very cheap incredibly cheap carpet compared to other finishes and other building materials mm. they always said we never paid more for any building that we bought never paid more than it would cost to carpet it which is incredible <laughs> So say, say carpets, I don't know, um, a pound a square metre or 10 pounds a square metre, whatever cheap right. carpet would be. That's yeah. what they were paying for those buildings. Wow. So they were mostly, uh, obviously, uh, converting big old mill buildings and factories right. in and around Manchester and obviously other cities now yeah. um, into apartments. Right. Um, so obviously, given uh, maybe lower values when they started yeah. off yeah. and the costs of actually doing those works, which can right. be very, very high, yeah. Um, in some ways, it was absolutely essential they got that building cheap. Right. And that's what they managed to do. So, yeah. um, I mean, that's probably the main pitfall, really. Um, and perhaps getting wrong advice. I mean, we've got planning. Go, go to a good consultant. It's worth paying a little bit more for a good architect or a good planner. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you might come to regret it. For example, we've done a scheme uh, which starts on site next week, funny enough, beginning of September, in Bexley. Um, mm -hmm. residential scheme for apartments um, we were the fourth architects to be appointed by that client for that site the other three architects had got refusal time after time after time each architect got a planning refusal and yeah. couldn't think of a way of um, sort of untying the knot of the complexities <laughs> of that site if you like and then the client came to us and we got approval so right. that, that building's being built next month so uh, you know okay. do, do get good advice it's essential to get good advice brilliant Okay, thank you. So, thank, uh, I yeah. guess, can, can I just add one Oh, yeah, sure. George? Go, go well, ahead. Why not? <laughs> because because there, there is something else. Okay. Is, is time. Yeah. Okay. So, for heaven's sakes, don't underestimate time. Mm. Especially, that was one of the advantages that George and I mentioned right at the very beginning of this podcast is the advantage of PD. Yeah. If you're not in a PD situation, if you're in a planning situation, um, many of our clients get options rather than buying land. Obviously, yeah. options are very cheap or even almost free way of, of acquiring land, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of those options these days are 18 months. So don't be tied in a situation where you've got a six-month option or a 12-month mm. option. Yeah. Of course, you may need to prep. Obviously, you need to prep. You need a few months to get a planning application ready. Yeah. Then goes into planning. The planning yeah. might not necessarily take two months or three months like it's supposed to. It could yeah. take five months. You, yeah. That might be a refusal after you've waited five months. So you then yeah. may need to go to appeal. Uh, even your appeal may be knocked back, but there could be mm. lots of positives in that appeal wording and a yeah. couple of negatives. 
So yeah. then you need to go back and do planning again. Mm-hmm. So time, do not underestimate time. Otherwise, you get yourself into a dreadful mess if you're not careful. Okay. Um, what about, um, you know, because it's not just not just the design, the plan. There are also various surveys you have to get done and so on. Mm-hmm. To give people an idea, and I know you, you can't say, oh, it's, it's on average it's going to be this. If you gave an example like for this kind of project, then doing all those things the person would have have to put up this much money but for this kind of project it would be around this kind of money to cover all the surveys design fees planning application and so on um, all, yeah obviously it does vary according to the context a sure. lot and there are in people have these uh, validation checklists the councils and there can be uh, i think the most i've counted there may be more than this is 26 things so there can be 26 things you have to do in terms of reports and consultants. So yeah. obviously that could cost the earth. Yeah. Uh, one of our clients is happy to spend £100,000 on a medium-sized planning application. Okay. Um, I guess a small planning application, you should be able to do it for about £10,000. Okay. Uh, so what, what can, you, can you say, what is that medium that costs 100000 and what is the one that costs ten? Yeah, people well, people normally say, about. even for funding, so obviously once you've got the planning, you start on site, you can get developer funding, uh, it can include the fees as well. People normally say allow 10% for fees. Right. So say, say it's a two, you know, that includes everything that's in construction drawings and the engineer uh, and everything. Um, so obviously on a £2 million build, that would be 200 grand in total right. fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the key ones that we're involved in, of course, well, this list could be longer than I intended. <laughs> you obviously need an architect. Yeah. Anything that's um, anything that's mostly design related, we're more than capable of doing the planning as well, the planning statement side of things. Yep. But anything that's more a policy or a little bit difficult, we always recommend getting a proper planning consultant on board to address the policy issues. Mm-hmm. So you've already got the architect, the planner. Uh, topographic and building survey by a proper measured building surveyor, mm-hmm. um, often a tree consultant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may need uh, on things a little bit more pushing the envelope, if you like, a daylight and sunlighting consultant. Uh, mm-hmm. We've worked on quite a few now where you also need an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. So uh, very often um, contamination or decontamination yeah. uh, consultant. Yeah. Then you get phase one, study phase two, study phase three. Um, especially if you're doing things like I was saying about, you know, redeveloping garages and things, whether it's a workshop or literally right. uh, parking garages. Um, so they're probably some of the typical things. Um, and people, you know, people provide a good service. People just want a good day's pay for a good day's work at the end of the yeah. day. Uh, but each of these things does add up. I mean, each of these other consultants, we typically want two or three thousand pounds to do their work, uh, and quite rightly so. Mm. Um, one thing I would say, of course, is the planners very often. Uh, a more there's more of an expectation should we say that these things will be done than there probably was 10 or 15 years ago right um planners do like to tick box things a little bit yeah um just on the grounds of being risk averse i guess mm. um you don't want things to go wrong they don't want to black mark against their name so do do get this stuff done the planners will right. expect it especially things like daylight and sunlight um the consultations and, and, and consultants reports are yeah. pretty much other than very, very small applications, are oh, pretty much an expectation now, uh, certainly within London. Right. Um, so, so do it. What I would say as well, um, if something's got to be done, and people like me advise you it's got to be done and should be done, then for heaven's sakes, do it as early as possible. Mm. So if something's got to be done, do it as early as possible. There's no point dragging your heels or trying to be difficult with the planners. Yeah. Uh, just show, show good faith. Say, yeah, we'll get this done. Otherwise, 
Um, there's different things that could happen. It could affect the build, yeah. or you might try and put it in for planning. Then you'll get a letter of non-validation right. where the planners say, sorry, we can't even register this application. We can't even validate it right. until this decontamination phase one study comes in or this yeah. archaeology study comes in. So, yeah. you know, I mean, time is money. Um, mm. Just by trying to be difficult and trying to save costs, you've yeah. immediately, you still pay the same money and you've cost yourself two extra months of time. So uh, I say, if somebody is doing, do it at the very beginning of the process. Right, that's good advice. And when you, when you said ten percent, um, allow ten percent, was that ten percent on just the building cost or ten percent on the GDV? So what are we talking about? Oh, build cost. Yeah, on yeah just build the building cost. cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For example, typically architects fees historically were six percent of build cost right. total. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, then you obviously got engineers and other consultants, etc. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So, um, if if people want to follow up with you, um, you know, on social media or contact you, where where should they look? Um, the main thing really is the website. If you go on our website, there's lots of other clickable links on there, uh, so you can look at our Facebook postings, LinkedIn postings, my own personal LinkedIn posting is next to my own name right. on our team, meet the team. Um, so the website is um, designscapeconsultancy.co.uk. So that's designscapeconsultancy.co.uk. Brilliant. Okay. So I'll, I'll put some clickable links and also I'll put some of your social media down there as well. Great. Fantastic. Um, brilliant. So thank, thanks, Kaysen Kingsley, for coming on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you found this useful, please go and share it with somebody who you think needs to, needs to hear it. Um, and um, goodbye for now. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks very much. Bye, thank Kingsley. You. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.